Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In this episode of Law Talks... Ellie and Katie are joined by Alison Margolin, a U.S. criminal attorney who specializes in cannabis licensing. Listen in to learn more about the U.S.'s so-called war on drugs and the implications for recreational drug users. Okay, so to start us off, please could you tell us what your journey into qualifying as a criminal attorney was like? And for those unfamiliar with the U.S. legal system, what does it mean to be an attorney in the U.S.? So... My journey started very early on towards being a criminal defense attorney. Both my parents were criminal defense attorneys when I was born. And uh, my mom ended up doing family law later on after my parents got divorced. But my dad is a criminal attorney till this day. And so he's been one for like about 55 years. And even though my mom did change to be doing family law and they were together, both of them shared definitely a passion for criminal justice. And I, you know, was well aware of, of my grandmom's politics and my dad's as well from a young age. And I went to work with both of them often. And I would visit prisons with my dad when I was young. Not like I could, I couldn't go inside the prisons, but I would, you know, wait for him. Like, I'm maybe like a teenager on. So I had like a real understanding of the life of a criminal defense lawyer, uh, which of course is very important when you're like choosing a career. It's not just about like whether or not you like the theme of what your work is, it's like, are you, do you like the actual day-to-day life? So fortunately, I was exposed to that in a, you know, where like a lot of people aren't exposed to like, what does it mean, the day-to-day life of being a criminal lawyer? So I was exposed to that pretty early on. I wanted to be a writer before I wanted to be even a lawyer. And I wrote my first story when I was about eight. And then when I was older, I became interested in drug law issues like from a pretty early age i my mom with my mom's very strong encouragement reminded me that if i wanted to change the law i had to be a lawyer and i could also write which i was very you know which is the case i actually published a book last year on like kind of my experiences as a you know 
growing up in this world, like the marijuana legalization world, and my trials and tribulations as a criminal defense attorney. So that's what I did. I went, I came from, I went to Beverly Hills High School and grew up like the Beverly Hills and Hollywood Hills area. And then I went to the East Coast for college and law school. And I've been back now since 2002. So I've been an attorney now for 21 years, this December. That's so cool. Yeah, that's that's a really cool, unique experience. And yeah, like you were saying, quite interesting that you kind of were exposed to stuff like that from such an early age. And you've mentioned that obviously you're interested in the law around drugs. And when we were sort of looking you up and drafting the questions for this episode, uh, one of the things that really stood out to us is how you were one of the first lawyers to specialize in cannabis licensing and law and sort of you've built your practice around that space so we were just wondering what motivated you to take that specialization well I like wanted to do drug defense from an early age and in addition to being exposed to it from an early age it occurred to me that like that when I was like 12 13 years old and I was a very good student and it occurred to me that Criminalizing drugs was like criminalizing a certain type of intellectual experience, even though I was a very straight person. I didn't like smoke either until I was like after, the summer after my, you know, senior year of high school, which like, you know, was pretty, is like for at least California, is, I would say I'm on the older side, especially for Los Angeles. And, but I, but it occurred to me that there was something like that was. A violation of our right to think early on even though like i didn't really i didn't like the white i i didn't even like like really my dad's like lifestyle and like he was he, my dad is like very active in the Hindu community he would say and like is friends with many counterculture figures but i thought they were like very strange and i was like it wasn't my seat but early on i felt that there was you know something very wrong with People went to prison over altering, you know, their states of mind. And when I grew up, it was the time where mandatory minimums were coming into place, which in the United States, those are the laws in Congress that were passed that still exist on all controlled substance distribution from marijuana to methamphetamine to fentanyl. And basically, there are laws that were developed where people face, you know, five to 10 year to 20 year mandatory minimum sentences unless they cooperate at some level with the federal government. And either that's through being an informant, like full on wearing a wire, that kind of stuff, or even just having to have a session with the government where you tell them what you know. Um, and I didn't understand like the mechanics as we're going into place as I was like realizing there was a problem. And that was like the age where, you know, they were, they were passing that, that disparity. There were very many, uh, and that occurred to me when I was at Columbia, where I went to undergrad. I like I got to develop like a decent. I was a political science major, and I got to also develop like a pretty decent understanding more about the drug. Where I did my thesis on the politics, like interest group politics surrounding legalization efforts from marijuana through other drugs, and I studied that. Um, and so that was. You know, that furthered my interests. And then I wrote my essay from a law school on the theory of legalization, including like 
you know, political theory, like John Stuart Mill, you know, the author of On Liberty, which is like a, you know, book of the 1700s, kind of like that provided, let's say, inspiration for the declaration, you know, for many different, like, you know, theories of American governance and including like what our rights were in terms of inalienable rights. So these, like, reading all these texts and the fact that, like, my very establishment schools, like, totally supported my interests, that made me feel... I already knew I was like, I knew this was correct, but I think that I was obviously benefited in my confidence by being so widely accepted in all those arenas. And then I wrote my thesis at law school on with like the constitution argument for cognitive liberty and the way to alter consciousness. And the things I wrote about in college, which was the, it was basically about why at that time marijuana legalization had passed and why other Full, fuller legalization had a pass. It was medical at that time. And I talked about how at that time there was a kind of a disparity in the drug legalization community. Like it, you know, some people thought for the medical marijuana activists, including the AIDS community, that you should take marijuana out of the universe of criminal justice and mandatory minimum discussions because it was saving people's lives and not to be associated with harder drugs like cocaine or heroin or, you know, pills came to be fentanyl but in my original analysis and then this ended up i think being true like showing itself in california politics to me it seemed you couldn't get support for legalization unless there was an aspect of criminal justice reform and ultimately what passed in california became a model for the progressive states and it was like a legalization system that has is founded on benefiting people who are victims of the war on drugs it was actually written by the Drug Policy Alliance. So that's kind of my how things kind of came to be. Thank you very much. That's really interesting. And a lot of our, well, the majority of our listeners are from the UK, although we do have uh, like some UFSs and things like that. So could you just clarify the current state of cannabis licensing and law in the United States? Obviously, there's all the sort of different states, and I know that that can different, differentiate with laws in between them. Well, first of all, so like, right. So I'll start with this. This will kind of exemplifies the whole situation. Like, even though I'm an expert in the area, I don't actually really do very much licensing anymore or transactional work with cannabis. I'm mostly doing criminal defense work, which was always my bread and butter and doing like, you know, tax evasion, money laundering. There still are federal cases being charged for cannabis, if you can believe it. So all that kind of, you know, is the, will get us into the discussion. So Marijuana possession and distribution is still actually criminalized on a federal level where people face mandatory minimums depending on the quantity they conspire to distribute from five years, 10 years and onward. And also something applies to sentencing guidelines, which are another federal regime, which determines what someone's sentence is based on factors like their criminal history, the quantity, whether they cooperate with the government, these types of things. So it still is a federal crime both to possess and distribute marijuana which is the Drug Enforcement Administration, from spending funds on medical marijuana-related prosecutions. That was then codified through um, case law into kind of a doctrine um, and a defense in court. So if you are the state in the United States and you are treating marijuana versus recreational, you have a defense in federal court. If it's recreational, you don't have a defense in federal court. If you're doing both medical distribution through a medical facility as well as recreational, 
the government, meaning the prosecution for the federal government, can actually add up your quantities of both, let's say, legal and quotation marks, marijuana and illegal marijuana, and substitute on those guidelines. And I've actually had a case where my client ended up have been sentenced to 17 years for his first marijuana offense. His sentence was commuted to six years by a president I otherwise have distaste for. So I won't say his name unless we have to, but I talked about in my book, like that this case on the state levels, about 33 states have some kind of legalization. I believe of marijuana, there are some states that don't have any. In the Southern states, kind of true to the political heritage of the United States, where legalization exists, there is no accompanying criminal justice reform. So, for example, in California, New Jersey, New York, and some of the Northeast, but California having the best laws. When legalization was passed, there also was decriminalization of marijuana, meaning even at like California, it's supposed to be, although sometimes prosecutors don't listen, but all marijuana offenses in California are supposed to be misdemeanor offenses, meaning people face less than a year in county jail unless the person has a prior sex or violent offense or the person is transporting or or growing for out-of-state purposes. So Southern states, like Oklahoma, for example, even though they have legalized, let's say, medical marijuana, if you do it without a license, you face like 20, 30 years for when in California would be like a dismissal. So the law is quite disparate depending on what state you're in. When something that could be nothing in California could be where it's 20 years in the South. So it's, you know, so that's kind of the state of the state laws. Thank you. That was a very comprehensive overview. I think it's particularly interesting for us because obviously in the UK, the situation on cannabis is completely different. I mean, in some situations it can be prescribed medically, but that's private healthcare. And obviously we have the NHS system and it's very, very strict. So it's just super interesting sort of see the difference and the changes in the law over time and you've talked a little bit there about your book just don't and we were just wondering what inspired you to write your book as well I mean it makes a bit more sense now hearing that you were initially wanting to be a writer but was there anything more than you know just that no I mean yeah I was just like I I mean I also did like what I did read and writing like my whole life or journalistic writing, depending on that era. Like in college, I was in high school and college I did and law school. I was on my student paper and an editor. And then and then I did like I've written, you know, for the past like 20 years here and there for different legal journals. Like, but I always wanted to. But my favorite writing style was memoir. Like that's what I focused on at Columbia. But I wanted to write a book since I was like eight years old. I wanted to write a memoir since I was 19 and took this amazing memoir class at Columbia by one of my favorite writers named Danny Shapiro, who was like an amazing memoirist. And I was like, that was what I was going to do. And if I didn't do it, I would be like aggravated that I had it. And, and I would say, I don't want to say envious or jealous of those who had, but it would have been like a problem. For, it would have been one of these things that I, you know. One of the various things that I would like my mom up over weekends to say, I didn't feel quite yet. And so it was just one of these things. So, yeah, now, I mean, I wish that I could like 
for the, I wish I could spend the next couple of years writing my second book, which I've kind of already started working on, which would be about water rights and the kind of historical battles over water, uh, which is an area I've delved into in the last couple of years. And like, so I already have that already outlined. And if I could, ideally, I would like take a few case, criminal cases here and there and like, but write for the next like, you know, six months most of the time. But we'll see. Thank you. That was really interesting. Obviously, uh, you can really see your love for writing as well. It's always nice to see like multi-dimensional attorneys and lawyers in our in- interviews. Uh, so now focusing on something a little bit different. Could you tell us a little bit about the evolving regulations around? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Psychedelics and like the widening medical use. Yeah, so that's another. So psychedelics are emerging kind of, I would say, quite differently uh, than the cannabis space. Well, in some ways similarly, but in some ways different. One thing that's very different is that there's probably right now about 20 to 30 publicly traded psychedelic companies that are functioning through this program called the IND program, which is the, it's called the Investigational New Drug Program. In 1970, when the U.S. government first passed the National Drug Control in the form of the Controlled Substances Act, before there was just like a tax on, like before 1970, the idea that, you know, drugs were like part of the federal interstate commerce such they could be regulated by the federal government wasn't, it wasn't like everyone would have accepted like the interstate regulation of drugs before 1970. Before then, it was done through taxation. And then there was this case that came down, which ended the 1937 Tax Act for marijuana, and 1970, this thing was passed, the Controlled Substances Act, which scheduled and created, you know, statutes and criminal statutes for drugs. Now, under that, Schedule 1 is everything from that, which is the schedule, meaning there's no medical use and a high addictive potential. Now, these schedules were created and made without, I think, much you know, valid participation from certain medical communities. And LSD was in Schedule 1 as well as most psychedelics. And what's interesting is that all these publicly traded companies have been doing experiments. Most of the publicly traded companies that are dealing with these substances all have grants from the federal government. So while that's happening, which is not how cannabis regulation developed, and they're doing that legally, at the same time, substances like ketamine, which are Schedule 3 already, which is like, means it can be prescribed, 
which is a psychedelic, are being used for, you know, psychedelic purposes. There's, and other types of psychedelics, there's one a few, there's a few cities in California that have decriminalized it. I believe there's like one city in Colorado. And in Los Angeles, for instance, like if you're caught with mushrooms, either, I mean, if you have a good, like in my experience, dealing with particular, depending on where you are, et cetera, you, you know, if you are dealing mushrooms, I can't say it's like decriminalized, but possession of all drugs has been decriminalized in the city of Los Angeles. And even like sales of mushrooms can be looked at, you know, can, you can end up, at least for me, like I've done very well in those cases where I've defended that. And it seems that the DA's office is almost treating it like it's on the verge of legalization. Uh, but in other places, you know, you face very stiff penalties, just like kind of similar to the cannabis situation, just that on that bigger time level, like the national, international level, it's developed much differently because, you know, these publicly traded companies, which did quite well in like the early 2000, 2021 eras, kind of when they were, you know, all, when they were all coming out of the stock market, they're doing it legally, which you know, the, all these cannabis companies, a lot of them originally were part of, like at least in California, before we had licensing of cannabis distribution sales, and all other activities were decriminalized when, for medical purposes as like an affirmative defense, similar to like self-defense for killing versus a license. So, you know, that's, there's no state that I believe has like an affirmative defense for psychedelics other than each state and each, the federal government has like necessity defense if someone's like doing something to save their life but the law has developed a little bit differently between the psychedelic realm and the uh, cannabis realm thank you and just more broadly and this is this might not be relevant but i'm just curious has the opioid crisis impacted america's approach to drugs or impacted the law's approach to drugs at all? I mean, basically, that would be sim like simply like because of many layers of racism, including the fact that like doctors were mostly were reluctant to prescribe oftentimes to people of color. And that opened people's eyes to the draconian, more people to the draconian nature of drug laws. And I think started getting more people aware of it because they were now impacted by this criminal institution that even though it impacted white people before did not in the type of way that it was in large numbers like it was um what the opiate crisis where like people are like not only dying but getting busted all over the place so i mean so for that reason yes but was the i mean but the effect of it and the criminalization of like basically prescription opiates in the United States has had a horrible effect of creating the fentanyl epidemic, which is far worse than the opiate epidemic because at least then people like knew what was in their pill and now people can't even like people, you know, if they're not using fentanyl testing strips or getting their drugs from people who they know like very well, like are, you know, definitely facing the risk of having fentanyl in other drugs and now are facing death over just recreational drug use when it's not their intention. So I think that the, the outcome, which was the limiting of prescriptions, was very negative in terms of that regard. And there's like some like there's some benefits to like I'm not benefits, but I think collateral benefits maybe to the fact that now white people understand a little more about 
the criminal justice system, but at the same time, I still think there's like this whole now they're mostly in kind of the early phase of like understanding the law and probably into the demonization of the drug versus the demonization of the law. But it opened people's eyes on a, you know, because of the, like I said, because of the fact that doctors were racist and their reluctance to prescribe oftentimes to people of color that more white people were affected. Thank you. That's also a very interesting and seeing the like political and social, these things coming together and impacting the drug law in the U.S., and again, to sort of, we've obviously... Well, by the way, there's two books about it. They play Dreamland. And that was a really, one of the better books on that. I think by Sam Quinones. And Catching... Oh, Chasing the Scream uh, by Johan Harari. Those are both books that, like, I think are very... They, they touch upon that issue as well. I just wanted to give credit where credit is due. Thank you very much. I I've not read any of those. That'd be really interesting to to learn more about the, the situation. And focusing now on a slightly more kind of legal standpoint, I suppose, could you tell us a little bit more about some of your like high profile criminal cases that you deal with as an attorney? Yeah, I mean, so like this year I just finished and it went very well. A murder case, for example, I've had for seven years where my client had recently been stabbed. I wasn't able to like, run basically with his full strength. I got into a verbal altercation with someone who chased him. And my client had the gun and the other guy was not armed, but the other guy was drunk and under the influence possibly of cocaine and was chasing my client and saying he was going to take the gun. And my client shot two warning shots and the decedent didn't stop. And then my client, I could turn around and shot and it hit him and killed the victim. And I actually had that case from like 2016 through this year. I tried the case first in October and it was in Stanislaus County, which is central California. And my client was in custody. And this is also kind of an interesting situation regarding immigration laws. He's a dreamer, which is like, there's a dream act in the United States, which is the thing where people who were brought to the United States as children could apply for citizenship under Obama and various laws. And my client was one of those people, but and for various reasons, as if mine are not applied. So he was in custody during the pendency of this case. We won the case one time on like a motion because during the police had basically not explained to So in the United States and in California, basically there's two ways that someone can go to trial. One way is by having a grand jury, which is unusual, but it's where for a subpoena, they decide there's probable cause to go to trial. Another way is through what's called a preliminary hearing, where a judge can decide someone goes to trial. So in this case, the first time the, the district attorney decided to use this grand jury. And the thing that's good for a defense lawyer about a grand jury is that if the district attorney, the prosecutor, doesn't give evidence to the grand jury that they know of, that's what's called exculpatory, meaning anything that could free the person or impeach the police, but it's a pretty fluid idea. If they don't give them the information though that's exculpatory, you can get that grand jury indictment dismissed. And in our case, the district attorney had not and the, you know, the police officer had not revealed information was very important about a witness's testimony. So he won the first time, but then 
the way the law is, you can refile it for a murder case two more times. So they refiled it. We ended up just doing the jury trial. First, I did it in October and I ended up getting COVID. And then also we had to start it again in March. And my client got acquitted of uh, murder and voluntary manslaughter. And he got convicted of involuntary manslaughter. So he ended up getting released, which was wonderful. And it was like, we ended up using like forensic and scientific evidence. We had a cardiologist testify regarding whether or not the decedents could run with a shot through his heart because the, the district attorney's theory of the case was that my client had shot the decedent straight in the heart and then the decedent had to run as opposed to the scenario I described. I had a physiatrist, which is like a kinesiologist testify, a doctor of like a, a PhD in movement. And then, so that was very interesting, very stressful. But more, most of my cases involve like people who have guns who have like prior felonies usually non-violent prior felonies like drugs and i have quite a that's probably the most popular thing that i defend as well as like money laundering tax evasion it's just basically just you know people who are using money for in my instance of my clients for like purposes of buying drug facilities or distributing drugs um so it's really it's I mean, that's what I have. It's very fascinating. I do stuff from most, most of my cases are either in Los Angeles or in Siskiyou County, where I just finished the civil rights case, which is right up at the border of Oregon. Thank you very much. And then to finish off like for our final question, what we always like to ask. So what would be the piece of advice you'd like to share with honestness who are aspiring lawyers and potentially may want to even study and qualify in the U.S.? I think it's I think it's important to get like involved early on with everything that you might like not overextend yourself but if there's like several things that you might want to be interested in to start working on it early on like for example I wish it's fine but like I'm very I wish I could like be for example advising the state legislature about stuff about drug laws and be involved as a lobbyist in the state and federal governments. And I feel like had I, even though I wanted to do that even early on, had I pursued that early on, I would have been able to get more involved and have that be part of my career. And I don't know, like, I wish I would have got a little more involved in like lawmaking early on, but at the same time, like, I really can't, I don't like city council. Like, I don't want to sit through city council meetings. I never want to sit through it. So it's kind of debatable. I guess the number one thing is this, make sure that what you want to do is not just attractive in terms of the themes that it involves, but the day-to-day -day lifestyle is attractive. Like, you know, I like when I, you know, like working in a nonprofit, that's from what I've seen. I've, looked, I've never worked. I've worked at ACL for like one day as an intern in college and I didn't really like it. Like, they, for example, that kind of culture is like, I think I haven't worked there, but it seems like a nonprofit, they might have more of like a corporate, like, structure i'm not quite sure even though they do things that are um extremely progressive whereas if you're doing something where you have your own practice you can have like you don't have to answer to people you get to have like whatever lifestyle you choose basically and i think those are things that people overlook when they're choosing like choosing their field like what did the day-to-day -day look like and that's the number one most important thing because even if you like the theme of what you're doing, if you don't like the experience of it, you're not going to enjoy it. And it's like, it's, you know, it's a lot of time 
needed to like be a good lawyer. And if you're not enjoying it, it's, I would say, I, I don't see how one could do it. So I think that that's something for, very important that people overlook that aspect. Thank you so much. That's really, that's really good and valid advice. And thank you for the interview. It's been so interesting, particularly hearing about this US side of law and also these high profile cases that you can tell why they've taken so long and, and also particularly the drug and hearing about kind of the drug laws and how different they are to the UK. It's been a really informative interview. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.